As we come back together this morning, we, uh, we wrap up our brief study through the book of Revelation. We've tried to focus on the scenes in the throne room and the images of Christ and His enthronement and the ways in which uh, in the text we see uh, the Son of Man revealed and the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God and how all of these images come together. We've seen the power and grandeur and glory of the throne room. We've seen the transition from a throne room uh, in which uh, we see the Father and the Son together. We see it filled, filled with His people, the martyrs of the faith. And then we saw the city of Jerusalem, the place where God dwells as Christ replaces the temple and becomes the very means by which we have fellowship with God. The intimacy comes and therefore we have a new city without the need of a temple where we can meet God in every place and in every street. And in the midst of that, where the throne room sits as it sits high and lifted up, the water of life flows from the throne. And through the middle of the city, there is the tree of life, yielding fruit in every variety, 12 varieties, once a month, abundance, blessing, peace, and joy. And so we come this morning to the last vision, the last part of the vision in chapter 22. And it is a reminder that even as Jesus has asserted Himself, even as He has been glorified and raised up, that there is a completion. Work to be done. And He will come. He will return. And so that's where we pick up the story. Starting in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my reward or recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who, are, who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, Come and let the one who hears say, Come and let the one who thirsts come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the word of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we, we want to rest 
in these words. We want to be encouraged and challenged, transformed, sanctified, knowing even in greater degrees what it is to be your children. And we pray, Lord, that you might accomplish that even through the foolishness of preaching. And we pray, Lord, that whatever is said this morning that is not useful would be quickly forgotten. Pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So as we wrap up uh, the book of Revelation and we, we think through all of the wonderful imagery, I don't know, I spend way too much time on Amazon uh, looking up books and various other fun things and occasionally toys uh, for my suburban. But uh, the new flashing thing on the Amazon banners that roll across is some new show they're going to do called Omens or something. And it's the notion that a demon and an angel are going to get together and hopefully stop Armageddon, which is odd. And of course, but anyway, so they're going to be friends because they need to help stop Armageddon because that's the end of everything. The popularized notion that God run amok is likely to destroy all of existence so that he can perhaps be at peace for a while. And so it's up to the demon and the angel to protect humanity and the status quo from whatever divine being might want to end everything. And that's kind of an appealing notion in our culture, right? That really maybe good and evil aren't that far apart, and that occasionally we can all work together for some greater purpose, like stopping God from doing what God wants to do, which is often also appealing to us as created beings. But the reality is that when Jesus comes, it is not the popularized notion of the end of existence. God has not invested Himself and His Son and His Holy Spirit to eradicate existence. Far from it, it is to embrace it and restore it and to glorify it with His presence. And evil will need to be driven out. There is no detente with evil. There is no detente with death. We do not believe that an equal balance of light and dark creates harmony. The hope is that when the night passes, the morning star will show us that darkness has no longer a sway, that evil has been removed. And so this morning we are looking at an expectation of a return that is not the popularized notion so humorously embodied in this new show, but a reality of restoration and joy that we can scarcely imagine today. We have, of course, first the return of a king. Secondly, we have the consequences of the king's return. And finally, the comfort and the cry of the bride and the spirit as they recognize their king and its consequences. So we'll walk through it that way this morning. First of all, King. Uh, this is the first time Jesus, second person of the Trinity, identifies himself as the Alpha and the Omega. Two times already we've had the Father, God, identified as the Alpha and the Omega. And then the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb, comes into his presence. But now Jesus overtly connects himself. We begin to 
be confused or at least challenged in our understanding of different beings with Jesus now unapologetically declaring that he is also the Alpha and the Omega, no longer defined by time, a beginning or an end. He is. He is. Not derivative, but a king for eternity, a king who established everything. It is a wonderful transformation to have at this moment, as he promises his return, as the end of this book comes to its climax and we wait for the return, to hear Jesus describe himself in the same terminology and power as the Father. There is no second class citizen in the Trinity. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the root of David, the promise and the fulfillment. That is a connection back to humanity. That is Jesus saying, I am the greater Adam. I am the one, the Son of Man, prophesied in Daniel 9. The longing restoration of Adam's seed. The promise made to Eve that there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. I am the root of David. I am not simply a distant divinity only manifesting itself in the spiritual, but I am the connection, the restoration of heaven and earth, the permeability of your human existence and the spiritual reality in which I created you so that you might enjoy a full experience. No longer feeling the division. No longer wondering if one part of my existence is better than another part of existence. Should I praise the spiritual and denigrate the physical? No, the Alpha and the Omega then next defines himself as the root of David. The material, your identity, your humanity raised up to the right level of being created in the image of God. The morning star. I've alluded to this already. There's some of this language in the Old Testament, uh, but the significance, the scholars say, relates to after having gone through this tribulation and all of the challenges and the realities of sin run amok and the logical consequences of rebellion of God coming to their full weight, that that tribulation, that darkness, it is no way in any way to be described as anything horrific and terrifying and dark. And to come to the end of that and to hear that Jesus is that first ray of light, that star that appears in the morning that lets us know that the night is past. And so we have in the description of the King who is coming, one who is the Alpha and the Omega, connected to the eternal reality of the Trinity, one who is manifesting in glorified flesh. Somebody reminded me again that it is so key to remember that when Jesus ascends, this day when we remember His ascension, He did not shed His humanity. He did not ascend and sit at the right hand of the Father, now just in the spiritual reality of who He is. But the second person of the Trinity, still incarnate in glorified flesh that I don't quite understand yet, but material nonetheless, sits at the right hand. And that His first coming, His resurrection on Easter, and His second coming are the indications of that first light that darkness will not win but that the morning star 
is the first promise, the first payment, the first evidence of the fullness of God's restoration of His creation. There is no end of the world if one of the first signs that the world has been healed is a star, is the restoration of the heavens themselves. So what is the king's coming Entail Well, apparently, uh, recompense and reward, uh, depending on your translation. We seem to be wary of the word reward these days, which is unfortunate. There is the response, or the, the reality that he's already sent out messengers, and that he is the provider of water. So in his coming, there is reward, there are heralds, and there is that fresh beautiful, clear water for all who wash their robes. So I want to hit real quickly this idea that rewards are a bad idea. We all know the dangers. In fact, we, we, we rail regularly against the dangers of high achieving in religious settings. We want to make sure that our interaction with God is not based on our good efforts as if somehow I could earn God's love, and we are aggressive in making sure that we do not confuse justification and sanctification. Justification, God's declaration that He loves you and that in Christ He sees you as beautiful as He sees His own Son, and that is true right now. It can never become more true. You will see greater evidence of it, but its truth does not change. And sanctification, the opportunity by the work of the Holy Spirit to see in ever greater degrees the ability to die to sin and live for Christ. To embody in ever greater degrees the spirit and the love and the practices that Jesus so clearly exemplifies in the gospel, though often confusingly. Clearly and confusingly. But Jesus is a tough one to wrestle with sometimes. Can you imagine with me somebody that you love and respect who taught you a craft or a skill or an art and that they left you to do some of the work that they had trained you to do and that you looked forward to their return? You wanted to show them, not because you wanted more love from them, but because your love and relationship with them was such that you couldn't wait to see the look on their face when you said, I figured some more things out. I completed the task. I learned how to use color. I learned how to use shape and form. Fill in the blank. I used to, learned how to use electricity. I learned how to use your creation. Is there a way in which, even as we guard our hearts against trying to earn God's grace, and even as we guard our hearts about feeling superior to other people who are less spiritually attuned than we are, with all of those guards there, can we imagine that it would be delightful to show God what we've done and for Him to bless us to delight, to reward us for His own glory. To say, well done, good and faithful servant. Is there really any reason to overreact to the challenge we have with earning God's rewards 
and delighting in growing in such a way that He might bless us and we would be blessed by sharing what we've learned. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Abuse does not negate proper use. Don't be afraid of the word reward. Yes, well, you have to confess sometimes, as I do, that I do certain things because I hope God likes me a little bit better than the person next to me. Or that maybe I have a little bit more room to screw up next week because I was good this week. Sure. I'll never drive that math completely out of my heart. But God help me if I end up in such a cold relationship with God that I'm afraid to learn and to grow and to act as Christ would. To rob myself of that and sit, if you will, motionless, waiting for Godot, which is a wonderful old play about people waiting for God to show up and saying, well, at least we kept our appointment. Who can say that? And the wise friend said, millions. We can sit on a corner waiting for him to show up not having done anything wrong and not having done anything good. In fact, not having done anything at all if it weren't for some parables that suggested burying our talents is viewed poorly. You don't have to worry about screwing up. You don't have to worry about messing up. Because again, you're loved not because you succeed. You may come back and you may say, look what I've done and you've put it together and it's nothing like the instruction manual. It may be a hilarious misconstruction and your father still delights in you the reward is not based on the perfection of your achievements that's handled in christ most of our best work will seem just comical in comparison to the work of the father but that's not why he delights in us he delights in us because he shares the work with us he delights to reward us Don't in our piety rob God of His prerogative to reward and love His children. He is a sender of messengers. How delightful it is with the church and the Spirit to call people to the water of life. He has sent them ahead already. Come, drink, enjoy without money, without paying for the sweetest and best water you will ever have to be Filled and refreshed. The coming of Jesus is the coming of living water. Even as it is the coming of blessing. Now there are consequences. There are consequences. Uh, There are blessings for those who are washed. The access to the tree of life. The ease of relationship with God. The richness of that fruit. The peace. The fellowship at the table. That's a consequence of Christ coming. It's a consequence of the blessing of who He is. The fullness of Alpha and Omega. David's greater Son, the root of David and the morning star. But then there's this other awkward part of consequences. And we sometimes become, uh, again, uh, apologetic for God. But there are consequences for saying no, I don't need the Alpha and the Omega. I don't need the root of David. I can be for myself the divine. Can you imagine really that you'd want to be in a city with God 
if you chose to have a different God? Is that going to be a place of joy for you, a place of comfort? The fact that there are people left outside the city, they're not clamoring to get in. Now, some of us have to recognize that the, 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 the full impact of our choices is such that we may find ourselves choosing not to be in a place with this living water and the lamb that was slain and the fruit and the beautiful tree and all of the ways in which that symbolism describes a full and peaceful relationship. And so, because it's true, Jesus is perfectly willing to recognize that there will be some who choose to come and some who choose to deny the king and the king's call. To do our own thing. Uh, so we have this list, and it's an interesting list. We should touch on it real briefly. You have the dogs. Uh, now, the closest reference to this in Scripture and in time is Philippians 3.2, and it is Paul's description of those who would add religious duties to people. So there's two settings historically for the word dog uh, being in, in Scripture. One, oftentimes, those who are non-Jews. But interestingly enough, Paul is the first one to use that word, that negative word, for people trying to change Christianity from the faith that Christ establishes back into some sort of rigorism and cultural uh, identifiers that the Judaizers were trying to do in Philippians 3.2, which might give us all a measure of pause about ways in which we in the church begin to establish new ways of defining our Christian reality through cultural or historic religious practices. They seem to be adding or taking away, which is not condoned in this text. You can pray for the PCA. We have an overture to our General Assembly this year that would begin to make it mandatory to dictate that all churches should work towards establishing Christian schools and that to be a good Christian, you need to have your children in a Christian school. That's adding something. The fact that each one of us need to raise our covenant children and as we seek to do so, choose from Christian schooling and homeschooling and public schooling and to delight in the differences and the ways in which God can use all of those in each family and community of faith, but to begin to define ourselves as being orthodox by adding something like that is a stretch beyond what it means in Scripture to say this is the core of the faith. This is the core of our understanding. Even with all of the good intentions and desire to raise children in a way that encourages their faith. To add and to bind the conscience. Is viewed poorly. It's to add to the text. Sorcerers. Now this isn't Harry Potter. Uh, this is the desire to use the dark powers to avoid needing God. So how is it that I can use the dark spiritual powers, some of them which have powers similar to what we see in Christ, they can make certain things happen magically, supernaturally, 
They can tell us the future. The Bible never, def- never, never says that fortune tellers, by definition, can't see the future. It says, don't do it. The reality is that because of the dark spiritual powers, there are opportunities for real sorcery, actually for real looking into the future. Samuel really is woken up by the Witch of Endor and talks to Saul. These things are real. Don't play with them. It's not because they're false. It's because they are false in the sense that they are not resting in Christ. And when we use things to avoid our dependency on God, that's viewed poorly. Murder. Oh, wait, I skipped sexual immorality. Um, Again, a faithful God who describes himself as a groom. In fact, we have language of a bride all the way through this. If we define ourselves by a wonderful gift, but in a way in which it becomes about my own gratification and all the ways in which a perversion of the gift of physical love becomes an inability actually to have a relationship with another human being. I love uh, C.S. Lewis's description of uh, a man in a physical need saying he needs a woman. And C.S. Lewis says he absolutely at that moment doesn't want a woman. He wants a certain kind of release because a woman is a full-orbed human being created in the image of God. He doesn't want a woman. He wants an objectified thing. Is it any wonder that it would be hard for those who objectify others for their own personal pleasure and needs would find it an uncomfortable place to live in the city of God? You see, you've got to remember, although there is the protection, the gates are open. The confession is all that is required. Is it any wonder that those who lose the richness of physical love as an intimacy and a care for the other would find it difficult to be in a place where the definition of love is in one way illustrated by a husband who gives his life for his bride selflessly. Murder. Again, not a lot of us cultivate murderers in our communities, and so perhaps it doesn't seem quite so judgmental that the new heavens and the new earth wouldn't have murderers, uh, practicing murderers, hopefully repentant murderers, but practicing murderers would be discouraged. Does God really sound so angry as to suggest that practicing murderers probably don't have a place in His heavenly kingdom? Is that an unrational thing to imagine they might find difficulty living there? Practicing idolaters. Well, it's pretty hard to have the throne and the king and the Alpha Omega in that city and for me to have my own God and try and sort of set Him up somewhere on the side next to the tree of life. That doesn't make a lot of sense either. The idea that idolaters wouldn't want to even be in a city with a divinity other than their own. Is God really so harsh? Do we need to apologize for the Father saying, look, if you worship something else, chances are you won't want to come in this building. You won't want to come in this city. The gates are open, but you're going to stay outside. Because I'm not going to change who sits on the throne. Falsehood. My stars. We lie to ourselves. We lie to one another. 
what a challenge it is. But it makes sense that falsehood would have no place in a city of this beauty, in a city of this clarity. It is a place of transparency. It is a place of being known. It is a place of being unafraid. Lies come first and foremost from fear. The fear of being known, the fear that the truth will undermine my power, the fear, the fear. There is no fear in this city. Reverence for God, an understanding of the Alpha and the Omega to be sure, but no room for falsehood. If we delight in and need to and rely upon the inability to be honest with ourselves and honest with others, do we really think we would find a peaceful place? In a heavenly city where the earth and heaven are growing closer together and overlapping. Where our physical and spiritual realities find less and less separation and more and more integration. Is there any room for it? And if I have to hold on to it, if I have to hold on to the narratives that I tell myself, that I believe are stronger and more powerful than the reality of God. They may be narratives that come from having been wounded and victims. You may come by your false narratives honestly. But when confronted with the truth, do you hold on to the falsehood or the transcendent reality that the Alpha and the Omega, the Lamb that was slain, has come and is pouring out the water of life for you and all you need to do is accept it. There are consequences to choosing falsehood, idolatry, murder, sexual immorality, sorcery, and anything that is apart from the truth of who God is. But there's comfort, finally. There is comfort. The song that is sung by the bride and by the Spirit is an invitation to come and delight in the cool water. It is a delight that refreshes. I mean, all of the richness of that language. There's a beautiful little stream and, uh, up above Brooks Lake in Wyoming where we've gone up a couple of times as a family. And the water literally comes out of these rocks and it is so cold and clean and crisp and it doesn't have enough room yet for deer and various other things to do things in it. It is perfectly clean. And it is by far the most refreshing water I've ever had. You can't taste different. There's a peace to it. There is a quenching of thirst that is just wonderfully different than the water I get out of a tap. I can only imagine that multiplied several million times is the richness of drinking from the fountain of life from the water that flows from the throne. And we are invited, invited, without price, because the price has been paid. The price has been paid. By the King Himself, the water is free. Come. Come and wash. Come and drink. Come and know what peace and security and love and intimacy and truth, and wealth, and joy are.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you be merciful to the preaching of your word. Lord, it is not an easy thing to hear that a day will come where those choices of some of our loved ones, of a world that we know and care about, may have logical consequences and separation from you. But Lord, we ask that we might be moved even today to share the good news, to be those who sing and point others to the living water. Lord, that all might know what it is to rest, to delight, to Sabbath in the heavenly city, in a Jerusalem of peace. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.